Nirvana that I just released. There's a whole thing about you need to have a thinking plan. You control the dialogue. You can control the dialogue. So what do you want to be thinking during this? What are the statements you want to say to yourself or how do you what's your approach going to be to this segment because you you know if you're running a marathon it's a lot of time during the first segment so you've got a lot of chance for it to kind of wander hello hello welcome to chill track friday this is ali this is ann and we're back and we're back you know we end our episodes by saying See you in two weeks. Well, that was a lie last time. <laughs> it was like two weeks and like, yeah, like in like sea turtle weeks. <laughs> I don't know whatever that conversion is, if there is a conversion, but you know, it's, it's been months and months. So I like that you're already talking about conversions. It's very appropriate for our guests. Very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a time calculator in some ways. Um, what's been going on? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened? Or not yeah. happened. <laughs> what happened was that, like, I don't know, I felt, and I know that you agreed too, a strong commitment to keeping our regular release schedule. And once we realized that it was not going to be possible for a little while, we felt it was better to take a break rather than drip and drab release, which um, can be distracting and, and not productive. So we never really planned to take such a long break, but it just sort of happened. I mean, I was really busy with a job that was kind of all consuming. And I had mm-hmm. no um, no real predictable schedule in which I could reliably interview or edit or kind of do any of this, which was really hard. And actually, I mean, it was a huge game changer. It was one of the many reasons why I left my job was kind of seeing that, that my work-life balance was not <laughs> balanced. <laughs> There's an imbalance in it. It was yeah, imbalanced. No, I mean, yeah, so much happened, right? Like and we we talk about this on our episodes all the time like kind of go with the flow um actually in the beginning we called it you know the we're going to talk about how to not go out too fast in mm-hmm. in races and in running and and in life in general we really apply that to everything so here a lot of things happened you you started a new job you'd moved to Martha's Vineyard and then i started a new job back in april and that just you know how new jobs can be there's just you know new things to learn and it's just all consuming so it took up a lot of time and we're like hey it's actually our quality and our like cadence is going to suffer if we kind of try to force this so we just we took a break regroup and i think this is this is the time to regroup and you know we're we're back we're happy to be back yeah really happy to be back and it's funny there's a little bit of symmetry to the whole thing because it was the weekend that i was running the falmouth road race that i was kind of at my wits end about feeling exhausted and uh you and I always laugh about hashtag priorities like <laughs> when life gets in the way of running it's time to make life adjustments <laughs> and uh that was not a good day for me I was like so tired at that race and then um that was when things started materializing from my new job and um I've been there since the end of September I'm working at a gallery again and yeah just ran the Falmouth in the fall so there's a nice bookend there and had a wonderful time (laughs) but in that book there is a very new there's an interesting new character can you talk about Sable yes I got a dog and she's so cute and she is an early riser and a very fast runner so I think we're suited (laughs) we're well suited um although a little too early this morning it was 4 45 I got her to stall from 4.30. She's beautiful. I got her from the uh, 
local rescue here on Martha's Vineyard. And she is about 20 pounds and um, she's black with white paws and a white chest. And she has these beautiful floppy ears and gorgeous eyes. She's very elegant. (laughs) (laughs) She is. She is. And, and, And the way she gives you looks to get you to do what she wants to do is very very effective one of the most effective uh, yeah because 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 you visited new york with her and she was just i mean she she's so adorable i was like oh my god <laughs> you you're gonna you have you this is trouble you're gonna have a problem on your hands cause, yeah she gets away <laughs> with everything because she's so darn cute and i'm like can't say no she yeah see that's her being like get off the podcast she doesn't like it when i'm on my phone she likes attention she has um she's a little spoiled but Mm-hmm. Aren't you supposed to spoil your dogs? <laughs> Give them yeah. a nice life. Yeah, I mean, mine. Mine has such a good life. Well, my dog has such a good life that you know she's. I literally have dubbed her my recovery coach because I look at her and she's like, "Hey, buddy, nap time again. You should take a rest. Why are you working out?" <laughs> oh my God, Sable's like the opposite. I think it's because she's so young. So when I got back from Falmouth in the fall, I was exhausted, and of course, you know, it's time to take her out, and she wanted to run, and I was like, "Okay." here we go the cool down the fast cool down four hours later so she's not yet into recovery mode fast so she she's she's a fast runner yeah have you put her sprint times so far in the mcmillan calculator to figure out what her (laughs) other race times will be um well i have actually put the garment on while we were running together once (laughs) She does about 6.05 to 6.10 for about 200 meters at a time. And then she just sits. (laughs) So the idea of interval training is built into her system. Yes, passive recovery. I know, she understands (laughs) that. That is great. Speaking of the McMillan calculator, who is our guest on our return of the CTF? Oh, we have a great guest today, Greg McMillan. I feel like we get to speak to Father Time here. Um, Greg McMillan is a running coach influence on both of us for almost our entire running careers. Um, I was introduced to him and his skills and expertise through his McMillan running calculator, which is, what's the word for it? It's just like... It's the digital mathematical Bible for... Yeah. (laughs) To to get your times based off of your training and, and, and racing. Yeah, yeah, and to give you training paces and projected um, like what you might be able to do at certain distances if you train for that distance. And I find it incredibly accurate and helpful. And I use it as a tool for my own running and for my coaching clients. And it's just really fascinating to hear him talk about, you know, we get into the calculator and, and where it came from and everything. And more formal intro for Greg. Greg McMillan is a national champion runner He has a master's in exercise physiology, and he's the National Trail Marathon Masters champion. His running accomplishments, he is a 157-800 meter runner, 357 in the 1500 meters, 1455 in the 5000 meter, 3057 in the 10,000. He's run a 110-28 in the half marathon, 231-58 in the marathon. And he was the, in 1987, he was the high school state champion in the 1600 meters and the national champion USATF Masters Trail Marathon in 2009. He's the author of many, many books, most recently Running Nirvana, 50 Lessons to Elevate Your Running. And he is also currently developing a coaching 
education program for um, those who would like to be trained in his coaching methods? There's so much, right? This is we we talked about some of the accomplishments and the books he's written, but I mean, if you go to MacmillanRunning.com, and he will obviously speak a lot about all of the things and his philosophies. But he's, you know, you you can join the Macmillan Run team, which is this offering of coaching services that are sort of all virtual or like for all levels of athletes and his 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 run team program has thousands and thousands of runners um graduating out of there for different races different training programs um all the way from whether whether you're training for the 800 meter or all the way up to you know ultra marathons um it asks you a host of different questions on your running style and what type of runner you are and gives you a gives you a program that is kind of as if you're working with, you know, coach Greg himself. Um, Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend you checking that out. I'm pretty sure that if you're a nerd like us, you have been at the McMillan calculator at some point already. So that is on his website. So you've, you know, you've, you've been there. It's just the amount of amount and wealth of knowledge that he's accumulated and shared in, you know, throughout his running journey. That is just so, so impressive. And without further ado, I think we should just get in the conversation with Coach Greg. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you. So, Coach Greg, you've been on many podcasts. So, usually when someone like you gets on a podcast, people are very eager to like get into the, you know, we have Coach Greg. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of coaches have everything answered. But, you know, Chill Track Friday, like we take a very personal journey approach. So we're going to get into that stuff, the other coaching stuff, too. But I think our audience would love to hear from you about your early running days. Where did the journey for Coach Greg start and what were kind of the key highlights in that moment? Yeah, it's really sort of nostalgic. I grew up in rural Tennessee. So for us, our play was running. We It was transport as much as anything to get to play with the neighbors, which were, were not close. So super active uh, when I was young. And then in elementary school, they had what they called countywide field day. And so you participated in PE class in your elementary school and you did everything from, you know, the long jump, the softball throw, the hundred yard dash, the mile run, all those sorts of things. And if you were the top two, in your elementary school, you got to compete in the county championships, which was held at the football stadium, the high school football stadium. So that was a big deal because that Mm -hmm. seemed like, you know, a massive stadium to us. So me and my buddy who lived half a mile away, we both won the the mile in our high school, in our elementary school. So we got to compete in the county championships. And then I won that and then won that the next few years in elementary school. So that was really an early exposure to track. Didn't know what I was doing, wasn't trained for it. But I just think because of essentially my lifestyle that he and I, of course, we lived half a mile away. So we were getting a mile in. So we were kind of used to that distance. We had an unfair advantage maybe because we had that. Uh, So anyway, I did that for several years in elementary school. And of course, the high school track coach, he just comes and watches that. And he goes, that's going to be my distance runner. That's going to be my shot putter. That's going to be my long jumper. You know, he's just talent identification (laughs) starts early. So naturally, by the time you get to middle school, he starts coming around saying, hey, would you like to come out and try this or that? 
So I got the opportunity to compete uh, fairly early. Really wanted to be a basketball player. That's what I loved most. So I also was the point guard on the basketball team. But by the time I got to my junior year in high school, it was clear running was, was I was better at running. I mean, I was only five, six, 115 pounds as a junior in high school. That's not basketball material, right? So luckily the coaches said, hey, you'll be better at running. You, you know, why don't you give that a try? And that was sort of my, um, my start in running, I guess, was basically growing up in the country and then having those, those uh, PE classes where we got to compete in the mile run. That's so fun. Did you, do you remember what your time was as an elementary school student? Boy, I do not. I wish, <laughs> I, I'm sure my mom has the scrapbook clip, clipping somewhere, uh, but I don't know what it is uh, for sure. I'm sure it was not, I was not a phenom, that's for sure. I did win the state championship in the mile run, but I wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't blowing any, it wasn't breaking any records, that's for sure. That's so cool. Do you still love the mile? Yeah, that's my favorite event. I think, I don't know what it is about it. Maybe the symmetry of four laps, maybe just the kind of everybody else understands that. One of the things, you know, if you're a runner and you talk to non-runners, it's sort of hard to communicate what it is, why you're so passionate. But if you say what you run in the mile, and particularly I've run four minutes and 13 seconds. So to most people, that sounds really, really fast, you know? So I think that's always just been uh, a sweet spot for me. That's pretty cool. And then where where did it go from junior in high school? Uh, then I was state champion as a senior, and then I ran in college at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga, finished up my undergraduate degree at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, which is the main campus that you think of, uh, with a degree in exercise science, and continued to train and compete like a lot of us do after and was, you know, moderately successful at the regional level. Um, and during that time, of course, continuing to get degrees in exercise science. Cool. And then at some point, I'm assuming this overlap to coaching started to take place, right? Yeah, that was an undergrad. And, you know, like if you study exercise science and you hang around a lot of runners, they start asking you questions. Of course, I was so geeked out about what I was studying that I was happy to share mm -hmm. what I was learning, what my experiences has been, et cetera. And love, I love helping people. So, you know, first it's like, well, what's a workout I should do? So you provide that and then you provide a training plan and then they call you coach. So it wasn't really this sort of like, I, my career path is I want to be a coach. It was just sort of organic in how it developed. And I was really lucky that I got to work with, you know, a lot of age group type uh, athletes, some beginning people, and then, you know, got to work with some of the faster people as well. And that all occurred in the span of about five years that I got a chance to work with beginning runners all the way up to Olympic trials caliber athletes in that short amount of time. So I really started to get a, very, a good comfort level with working with kind of any type of runner. When you were studying um, exercise science, were you using yourself as the first kind of guinea pig, so to speak? Absolutely. It was totally selfish what I was studying <laughs> because I wanted to be better. I wanted to understand the machine. I was kind of always drawn to the coaches and writers and athletes that kind of had one foot in exercise science, but then one foot in the real world. That really attracted me. So I definitely wanted to kind of understand the basics of it. Um, and that's why I studied 
from kinesiology, sort of anatomy and biomechanics, up to physiology, sort of the energetics of it. I, I really enjoyed all, and even the psychological component, I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that too. Yeah, you're great at that, and we're definitely going to get to that aspect of it too. Can you? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Ali. Yeah, no, I was, I was just trying to think as you were talking. I'm like, can you paint us a picture of yourself, what, like, do while you were doing those studies? Was it like? And and you're you know you yourself are using yourself as a guinea pig. If I'm I'm thinking like you're in there studying things and then going out on the track, you know, doing something about running, taking down numbers, and then going back and being like, did that work? <laughs> you know, what and any whether you want to tell it in a story form or actually paint a picture, it's up to you. Well, a lot of it is you know because we did a lot of treadmill testing, and so you know you'd be able to kind of start to correlate what are people doing in the real world? And then what does that show in the data or from the testing? And when, when I was at the university of Tennessee, Knoxville, this is during the time they were really good. In fact, they won a national championship during that time. And Todd Williams, who's a two time Olympian, he was on the team there. So we tested him in the lab all the time. And he was sort of the extreme example of things. So it was kind of, that's what I was doing was just sort of looking at that, looking at training, how does this all kind of piece together? How can you apply what we learn from exercise science, what we know from successful coaches and athletes to work with all runners? Because it's very easy to say, okay, just take this type of runner, what works for them. But then if you're not used to working with somebody who's outside of that type, it gets more challenging, right? So if you're going to work with somebody who runs, you know, five minutes per mile for the marathon, and you, you know, your 5k pace is 12 minutes per mile. That's a, that's a totally different world. It's kind of like when we look at Kipchoge, you know, he runs four minutes and 39 seconds per mile for 20. It's just mind boggling. So I was very interested in what are the commonalities? How can we sort of make all of this applicable? What, what can you glean that can work for each type of runner and make her successful? That was really what I was interested in outside of how can I help myself? As I mentioned, it was kind of a selfish thing that I was, I was studying for sure. I, I, I love that. Yeah. It's, I'm assuming the history of the Macmillan calculator, which is so widely used and Anne and I are on it. I don't know, at least once a day for some reason, whether for ourselves or for someone else, <laughs> that's one tab that's always open uh, on our phone and on our desktops. But I'm assuming it's connected to at that point or, you know, how, how did that come about? Yeah. So that was in graduate school. So this is in the, the early to mid nineties and I was coaching a wide group of runners. So beginning runners, even working in cardiac rehab. So this was like people just, you know, can you walk for 20 seconds and then rest all the way up to Olympic trials, caliber athletes. And so like I said, it gets, gets really difficult. It's easy to coach somebody who's near your same speed because all the paces make sense. You kind of know, okay, for a tempo run, what makes sense for that person? That's going to feel hard or that's going to feel easy. But if you work with somebody who's much slower than you are or much faster, it gets more difficult because you just don't know how does that feel. So that's when I was kind of using all the currently available tools and rules of thumb, etc., but nothing kind of fit what I needed. And then also I was studying this correlation between 
sort of real world performances, treadmill testing, physiology and psychology, and how does that all come together to predict performance as well as the optimal training zones for each person. So out of that, that's what kind of the calculator grew. And I'd, I'd been with some really great coaches at that time, and they were very influential in helping guide, you know, getting the physiology to meet the real world. Because that was always the problem with most prediction tools. You know, some of them are just theoretical. So they're essentially taking a regression line against a whole bunch of data. And that is okay but our body's not a machine. It's not a straight line. So it gets more complicated when you get into thresholds and capacities and maximums, et cetera. And then some are just real world, but that's not good either because real world has too many variables. So, you know, somebody that's running the New York city marathon, that's way different than somebody that's running Chicago, good weather, bad weather. So you need a way to kind of tease all of that out. And that's what the calculator attempts to do is to help get you in the ballpark. And again, it was selfish. I did it for me. I still have the binder that's the printout of all the Excel spreadsheets. And I would just say, okay, you're this person. I would look it up, read across. These are the paces for these types of things. And then a buddy of mine said, well, we could put that on the web. And I was like, oh, well, that seems good. That'd be easier for me than flipping through all these pages. And then slowly, you know, people found it and it became really popular. But it, the, the goal was just to help people get in the ballpark with paces and then hopefully you have experience of okay how did that feel does it match up with what kind of the effort and breathing I should have and give them a starting point so this is going to be a very layman's question um, but in regards to that is it basically are you looking at the physiology of the system that you're trying to tax and what that equals for a pace for any given individual at that place <laughs> I, mean, I didn't explain that very well yeah so what we're what it's trying to do is i'm trying to say okay for you then and your performance level your current performance level then we know if we stimulate your body in this way, we're going to get these adaptations. And these are the paces that likely give you that stimulus. And the, the, here's a range for you. So kind of be in that range, depending on how you feel of the day. And then you should get the adaptations. And of course, hopefully you do several workouts and you get the feedback of faster, slower. This is right. This is wrong etc. And you start to find your uniqueness, uh, which is the end goal for all coaches is that the athlete becomes their own coach that they know, okay, for stamina training or lactate threshold training, I'm really good at that. So I might be on the faster end of the pace range or while I really struggle in those workouts, maybe me being at the slow end, that's a win for me. That's an optimal workout for me. So it's a way to kind of help you decide which, uh, paces should give you that stimulus and then also with the performances so we can also predict okay if you run a 5k at this time then here's what we would expect for a 10k or half marathon or marathon or whatever that's very interesting i find the predictor really accurate at least for me well that's not uncommon i think uh, i think it's good <laughs> you know not, obviously i use it a lot so i think it's good but i mean it's been almost 25 million runners have used it. So it's not, not used. So there is yeah. definitely a lot of sort of feedback on for, at that. And I, you know, for some people, they won't be able to be 
in a smooth line like maybe you are, but it definitely, hopefully it just gets everybody in the ballpark and gives coaches a tool to feel confident in what they're prescribing to the athlete can, uh, can deliver the improvements they're looking for. Can you talk a little bit about situations in which athletes just think faster is always better? What you say to athletes like that and why it's not always faster is better. Yeah, most of us learn the hard way, right? That's why we get injured after about eight to 12 weeks of running because running gets easier for the beginning runner. And, you know, you can go faster and you can go farther and it feels better and better, but the musculoskeletal system doesn't adapt quite as fast as our other systems. So we break down. And that's the point is that for newer runners and often injured runners, they have to train at the level their musculoskeletal system can tolerate. And sometimes that's a little bit slower and a little bit less volume than they would like to do. Or if they're just thinking about their effort or breathing or perception of fatigue, they could do, they could do more, but their body can't handle it. And then more experienced runners, um, they have to be careful to make sure they're stimulating the right systems appropriately. So if you're going, if you're supposed to be doing a recovery day and it's an easy run, then there are benefits that come from going easy, the pace being slow and not pushing. And so there is an education that, uh, I mean, a lot of runners are just forced on it because they get injured, but us as coaches, we're trying to guide them on, you know, how to distribute your effort across the world. This is, oh, sorry about that. Amazon delivery, of course, which is a giant emergency in the household. Uh, they have to go crazy for that. So sorry. Anyway, what I was saying is, yes, it's really important that the athlete always understand the purpose of the run and that if you're going faster or slower than the purpose of that for the day, that's not optimal training because we're always going for optimal training. So you see this a lot, particularly with younger runners. They, they do have that faster is always better. I just read about this athlete and they do their easy runs at this pace. So obviously I should try to do that. But you're not ready for that yet. And your musculoskeletal system probably can't handle it. And for sure, the coach has scheduled this sort of stress rest cycle that she's trying to have you on. And if you screw that up, then the dominoes start to fall for the long term. And it's a balance, right? Because I have some athletes that come to me now and they got oversold on running too easy. And I'm like, well, we might want to pick up the pace a little bit. You're, you've run so slow for so long that now you're too slow. And then of course, you've got a lot of really performance oriented or goal driven athletes that you have to say, okay, let's pull back the reins a little bit. I'd rather you finish this run feeling super fresh and fully recovered so that the quality, the next session is higher. Cause that's what we care about, right? Is we have these few quality sessions across a month, a training cycle, a year. Those are the ones we want to be of super high quality. If you're doing something that negatively impacts that high quality day, then that's not optimal training. You're sabotaging your improvement because you're not kind of keeping things in check. It's difficult. I used to coach a pro team. You've got, you know, 15 competitive athletes training together. They can, you know, every day can kind of turn into a race. So there's a lot of education about this is what today's about. I would set speed limits. I would say, hey, if you come around the loop 
faster than this, we're stopping and you have to start over, you know, just trying to really control them. And you have to balance that with the psychology of the athlete. You know, there's fast trainers, there's slow trainers. So you kind of got to work with what that athlete likes, what they, you know, kind of uh, makes them feel confident and kind of balance recovery for that athlete as well. I, I love that concept. I actually had a little note to ask you on my uh, on my on my questions here, which was the concept of coaching running, which is one thing, and then coaching the athlete, right? Understanding the athlete and then kind of adapting to that psychology. And you just touched upon that. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how how do you go about kind of managing that with uh, between coaching running versus coaching the athlete? Yeah, I feel like you know when you're a young coach, you're kind of a robot. You're just sort of replicating what you did or programs that your coach gave you or that you read or something like that. But over time, you kind of become more of an artist. And I feel like then as you get more experience, you you don't worry so much about the X's and O's. Those are fairly easy. It is more about how can I get the athlete, how can I manage the athlete's brain through this entire training cycle leading up to this event because there's good days, there's bad days, there's happy athletes, there's frustrated athletes, there's life that goes on. And you're just sort of always managing that athlete to get her to that, the starting line in the optimal mindset for her. So sometimes that might be, you know, the stick and sometimes it might be the carrot and sometimes it's the, you know, lots of pats on the back and some athletes need more kicks in the pants. So you really do have to kind of figure out the sort of psychological state of the athlete. And you may coach those athletes very, very differently because the of how she's going to respond to and recover from and sort of mentally uh, build or not build across the training cycle. So that was the fun part, particularly working at the pro level was working with very, very successful athletes that have very, very different personalities. And even though their performance level was kind of the same, that's the individualization that you have to do to kind of draw out. And that's why I did that article. Are you a fast trainer or a slow trainer? And I talk about these two guys that are essentially the same performance level, but man, they had to be trained slightly different because their tendencies, what, what they sort of, felt benefited them in training and then psychologically what made them confident. So you kind of got to work with that. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, I, and I find that applies like even, you know, I, I don't have that much coaching experience, but I'm already learning in terms of how to manage those uh, expectations from, or like just understanding the athlete more and what will bring them more confidence from, you know, uh, from the workout, what is, you know, what their end goals are and how to, how to handle that. Because ultimately that's where the gold is because, you know, we focus a lot on the physical training and obviously you've got to do that correctly, but I never had a training program that the athlete completed as it was originally written. So it's always being modified, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where that is the psychology. And you, you know, somebody's got a relationship that's gone sour. Well, that's a different athlete coming to training than somebody who, just fell in love and they're riding high and everything's gold, right? So you, you're just balancing that person. So you are coaching the person. And that's why I think this individualization is so important, not just from the 
physiological side of things, but from the psychological side. With a lot of athletes, I have them doing things that maybe physiologically it's not the optimal, you know, or the the best workout, but I know psychologically it's going to be the best for that athlete and what their limitations or biggest challenges are in a race, then we're going to work on that in this workout. So to me, the win is, did she get that exposure that I wanted uh, to help build that confidence or whatever it is that, that is needed? Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, that empty box of the mind, right? Like, how do you measure that? Like you said, you can you can measure all the all the physical stuff, even, you know, if you know the weather a week in advance and like, you know, it's going to be like that. We're going to adjust your paces. You can run it through the heat and humidity calculator and <laughs> readjust that. But that uh, the, the mental part is so, so intriguing to me. Speaking of the mental part, can we talk about your go zone strategy? Because I found, I mean, the first time I read your article about that and then applied it in a race, it was like a completely different experience <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I kind of discovered that in college running the 800 meters and, and the mile or 1500 meters. Because I started to learn that it's, you know, it's the third 200 in the 800. It's the third lap in the mile. It's really kind of where it came from. And I just started going harder during that period. So I would run faster during that period of the race than it seemed like I should. And what it did, of course, was it kept me engaged in the race more. So instead of like falling off the pace, I had a better chance of staying on the pace. And certainly if you were competing with somebody, that was a great chance to get closer. I have a good kick. So I was like, okay, if I can just stay with them, right? So it set me up for success. And it started to, if you start evaluating athletes' performances in races, you see there is that period just after halfway, but not close enough to like you smell the barn and you can do your finishing kick. It's that kind of no man's land there creates the biggest challenge. So to me, I just started telling athletes, sorry. So for me, I started telling athletes, that's the go zone. That's where you have to raise your level of intensity higher than you feel like you should to match the ever increasing fatigue levels because fatigue comes in sort of an exponential curve. So you've got to really raise your level of attentiveness and focus in order to uh, fight that fatigue, stay on pace, get yourself close enough that you can really finally your brain will relax and let you kind of kick. So it's a great way to avoid the pity parties. It's a great way to stay engaged in the race. It definitely will keep you on pace more. You can use the strategy in workouts to start. So you start saying, okay, you know, I'm going to do 10 repetitions. So the first two or three, you're, you know, just sort of wake up the body and your body's kind of like, okay, I get what we're doing. But really it's like number six, seven, and eight. Those are the ones that are the toughest repetitions because nine and 10, you know, you don't worry about them because you're almost done, but it's like, can you raise the quality of six, seven, and eight? And then your total workout quality is a little higher. So I started using that with athletes and I tell you, workout quality went way up and then the racing uh, performances, they just didn't have that fall off in that middle period. They didn't have as much of the pity parties. They didn't, I don't know, they just stayed on pace and got deeper into the race before, you know, the, the finishing kick begins. And so the performances just got better and better and better. And it's free speed. 
because you don't have to do anything other than think different <laughs> to do it, right? You don't have, there's no special training. It's just like, can you engage your mind during that period? And, and I kind of, Scott Simmons has a really neat graph in his book, Take the Lead, where he talks about fatigue, you know, is not a straight line sort of gradually up across a race. It is this like exponential mm -hmm. curve. So you've got to match your effort to that rising level of fatigue. So you do have to kind of raise your level of effort at a greater rate than it seems like you should. It takes a little experience, but man, it delivers great performances. Yeah. It's, I mean, I love the way you use the word like engaging because racing requires, well, I think good racing requires a lot of focus. And that's for me, what is the tiring part? You know, the, obviously there's the physical tiredness, but after a marathon, it's like, I can't even fathom running another one in a season because it takes so much mental focus to, to stay on. Um, you know, Ali and I talk a lot about when people ask us questions about the marathon and pacing and, and, kind of reality versus what we want it to look like on paper, which always looks, well, not always, but it often looks easier. <laughs> but we always say the effort to maintain your pace becomes harder. It's not that the pace is hard. It's the effort to maintain it is harder. And so for personally, I find the go zone strategy to be, it is fun because there's nothing worse than being in your own head and thinking, oh, this sucks or this hard having that strategy keeps you out of your head. It keeps you like really playing with the game. Mm -hmm. Because our brain has strategies to try to keep us from our best performance, right? It's trying to protect. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't control the dialogue, then those messages, get, they, they have greater weight. But if you're focused on something, then that has less weight. So you're focused on, you know, kind of, like you said, the attention, the, the, whatever you want to call it. If you're focused on that, then those fatiguing messages, they, they're more noise than they are sort of really loud. So that's another benefit is that you're just getting deeper in the race. You know, it's like, you know, people that have, you know, if you're working a job and it's busy that day, the day goes by super fast, but if it's not busy, you're bored. It's the same amount of time, but a really different experience. So I think the race is just like that. And the more you can be attentive appropriately across the race and particularly in the go zone, it just gives you a, a better chance to fight off the mental fatigue, the pity parties, letting all the negativity come mm -hmm. in because I mean, you're going to have to vote a zillion times across a race, whether to push or not push. And the more you can be actively engaged of, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, I'm going to keep going, you know, I'm going to be my best or whatever your thing is. That makes a big difference. Oh my God. Your second dog is a Frenchie. Yeah. She's a Frenchton. She's oh. half French bulldog, <laughs> half Boston Terrier. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a French bulldog who's snoring behind me. I don't know if you can hear her. Oh, they have a, they have a funny little personality. She's just laughing all day. It's so. She's fantastic. That's for sure. <laughs> This entire conversation that we just had reminded me of something that is, it's just so fascinating to me, especially you, you, you said something that actually triggered something else for me. You mentioned about um, the brain is trying to protect you. And I remember you had, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the doctor you actually interviewed, but it was uh, someone who you had an interview with who talked about the entire 
sort of psychology of why we get anxious around before races and you know he kind of took it back and connected to the you know the primal <laughs> right uh need for survival i guess uh, can you talk a little bit more about that yeah that's dr stan beecham and so he has a book called elite minds it's a very good book for runners to read that talks about this sort of uh, kind of like a lot of things in running it's it's uh you've got a balance of yin and yang really you've got these mechanisms that protect you and keep you from harm but yet you've got to overcome those to a certain extent if you want to raise your performance level and stands really good about being matter of fact about what is a threat and what is not a threat and uh, even now tim notes with his central governor model Marcoro with a lot of the research he did on some of the conscious sort of thing. There's a lot more sort of neurological uh, study of these things. And, you know, they talk about your lizard brain, that whole real negative uh, oriented brain that we have. And then we've got, you know, our conscious brain that can override that. But we, you know, it's almost they're fighting each other. And so you've got fight or flight. So it does become this sort of like, who are you going to listen to? And a lot of training is our sort of conscious brain uh, being able to overcome that lizard brain, that sort of more primal that is that doesn't live in our real world and understand, hey, we're running the Boston Marathon. We're not being attacked by tigers. We're not going to die. Let us perform. And, you know, Noakes talks a lot about just kind of frequent exposure to overcoming that challenge and being kind of uh, faced with that anxiety or um, negative thinking, whatever it is, the more you can do that and the more you can consciously start to push through those periods of suffering, then the more the brain starts to go, okay, that's not the threat that it used to be. New runners experience that all the time, right? Their first few runs, they always think, why does anybody do this? This is horrible. This is terrible. But of course, their brain is sending crazy fatiguing messages because it's going, we don't know what you're doing here, but we don't like it. But of course, a month later, they're running longer, chatting away with their training partners and loving it. So it is just something that across your training, you have to get better and better at dealing with that suffering, dealing with anxiety, dealing with the sort of more primal uh, responses, emotional responses to something that because it's important to you and because it is going to be a big challenge and the, the outcome is unknown, but it's desired, then it creates a scenario where you can see lizard brain can get really active <laughs> during that time. So you've got to have those mechanisms. And a lot of training, to be honest, is about the athlete getting comfortable with exposure to different types of that type of suffering and have and developing strategies that she can use to allow her to perform her best during that could be mantras could be mm -hmm. shaking your arms out every mile it doesn't matter what it is as long as you've got something that you can rely on and before races you know i've I've had coached athletes that you basically have to wake them up right before the race. They're so relaxed that, you know, and then others, you've got to like calm down, like quit fidgeting. You're burning your energy before the race starts. So, you know, there, we all have our thing for sure as to what we need to work on. 
But I think part of it is to recognize that that is normal in humans. We mm -hmm. all have that. And the superior athletes that we may feel don't deal with any anxiety, any of that suffering, because they look, it make, they make it look so easy. It's the same thing going on in their brains. They just have really sharpened the knife at being able to cut through all of that sort of noise that is not helpful to achieving the goal. So a lot of training, and in fact, a lot of athletes, when they say, oh, this workout, it didn't go well, or it's all really suffered or whatever, I say, well, okay, while we didn't run the pace we wanted, and maybe we missed out on some of that neuromuscular training that we wanted, we probably got a bigger mental toughness session mm -hmm. than we were expecting. That may pay bigger dividends later. Than if you had run, you know, so it's a balance of the physiology and the psychology. So I never look at anything as like bad. It's just more of what did we get out of it? And let's not focus on what we didn't get out of it because there probably was something that we can, that will help you in the future. I love that. It's so true. There have been so many times when, yeah, the workout might, go wonderfully other times it doesn't, but then you finish it. And just the, the finishing it, I know translates so well to a race and that we can do hard things. You know, think about the winter. You guys live where there's winter. Those runs where you don't want to go, but you bundle up and you get out there and all the non-runners are looking at you like you're crazy. Man, you feel so proud of yourself when you come back, don't you? That's just like, and to me, that's invaluable at building an athlete that's going to, you know, continue to stay on path, be stay motivated and, and build toward the, the peak performance. Yeah. Speaking of uh, peak performance, recently you wrote an, uh, an, an article that I think it was titled somewhere around Don't Taper Peak. Um, can you talk a little bit about that concept? Yeah, I think we, um, you know, tapering always became like this really challenging thing for runners, particularly in the marathon, because the research says you should taper a whole lot, but runners feel terrible when they're tapering. And so, again, you have to balance um, that ability. So what, what I wanted to do was try to, again, change the focus on the athlete, because if you say taper, then people start to relax right which is not bad but we're about to perform we're about to do something really hard so we don't want to take you out of that so if you taper too much get too relaxed then you're kind of you've taken the edge off and you're not really ready to go out there and perform your best so what i wanted to do was it's almost semantics right i just wanted to think okay we're peaking so the reason we're doing this workout is because we're coming to a peak the reason the volume for this day is slightly lower is because we're resting for this next workout. So then we can peak for the race. So I really wanted it to be more of a focus on I'm preparing to perform my best. That has a little bit more to me of a like ever increasing ability to perform your best. Whereas if you say taper, to me, that's like, a, that's like going down. <laughs> so maybe it's just my the way I view things, but I kind of like this peak. I, I like this idea of, okay, we're resting up for this big thing, right? That's what we're, we're actually building up towards something. 
So the article kind of came out as a way to say, hey, I get it. You're not, you won't feel good if you taper for too long and you may kind of take yourself out of feeling good in running and feeling kind of ready to perform your best. So let's just kind of name it a different thing and we can apply some of the principles we know that work for kind of resting the athlete. But I also want them to keep thinking, I want to keep this, this, uh, this knife edge sharp. I want to keep it sharp all the way up to the race. I find that so amazing. That's why I just brought it up because I, I find that approach. I mean, you're not saying we are changing anything in the model itself. We're just going to visualize it. We're going to flip it on its head and say, we've come down here. We're going to go, we're going back up. Yeah. So right. that decrease in training load is actually an increase in fitness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if that's what it's designed to do. So we focus on the decreasing, but we should be focusing on, wow, now if we had like a recovery metric, right, that was really good. We'd be like, oh, you just got 10% more recovery, you know, or whatever. And then people would see it more as this build toward the peak performance. I think it's like such a human thing to like look at just something tangible and numbers wise. So when you see your mileage go down, you're like, okay, what do I do? These numbers are going down. Yeah. And you know, when you taper, you can feel a little flat. You cannot feel as good. Um, you're hypersensitive to aches and pains and all that stuff. So the taper is, it's really a, a risky business for sure. Yeah. We definitely try to have fun because it's like, you kind of, I always feel a little bit nuts. You know, like you mentioned the aches and things, it's like the phantom stuff and the feeling tired, but I actually enjoy the workouts in taper because I love to run fast. So it's like, I feel like you get to do it for like a mile, you know, um, sharpening the knife. I love doing the like race pace mile and a half, like race week, stuff like that. Um, but it's also really, it's so hard to remind and articulate runners properly that like, it's going to feel so easy because you're rested, but it's not, <laughs> it's like, don't go out too fast. Like, how do you impart that wisdom? <laughs> well, GoZone helps, right? So GoZone mm -hmm. is the first step to trying to keep people from going too fast. Because again, now the focus is putting all my effort over here. And not here. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in all of my training, we have this goal pace sequence. Doesn't matter if you're getting ready for the 800 meters, 100 miles. We're doing goal pace workouts every few weeks, and that should really dial us in on okay, this is our goal pace. And of course, we know the best racing strategies for different distances. You know whether it should be even split or slightly negative. You should have practiced that in some training, maybe some tune-up races. So then it is just coming to, I, I find breaking the race into little segments for the runner. And we're talking about what's your thinking plan going to be during this segment? What's your mindset? What are you going to, what are you going to be telling yourself? What's your focus there? What's your pacing strategy? I mean, for the most part, you have a uh, pace at the ready. <laughs> Anytime you turn your wrist, you can know what you're doing. So, I mean, we should be able to stay on pace because of that, not go out too fast. And hopefully with GoZone, it has prepared them to like control their effort early, put a lot of effort in the, in the most serious part where you can lose the time. And then of course you should get close enough to the finish. You can give a peak performance. So a lot of that's just goal pace training, communication about this is our plan. I do think runners don't have our thinking plan. You know, in my book, mm -hmm. Running Nirvana that I just released, 
There's a whole thing about you need to have a thinking plan. You control the dialogue. You can control the dialogue. So what do you want to be thinking during this? What are the statements you want to say to yourself or how do you, what's your approach going to be to this segment? Because, you know, if you're running a marathon, it's a lot of time during the first segment. So you've got a lot of chance for it to kind of wander. So I think having those plans, mental as well as physical, really makes a lot of sense to help athletes uh, pace properly. Um, you talked about personalization earlier, and that made me think of something else. So if someone from our, let's say one of our listeners goes to run team and wants to, you know, get a plan from, uh, from your program, one of the things, one of the questions they would have to answer is whether they're an endurance monster or a speedster or a combo runner. Can you describe a little bit, like, what was your thinking around coming up, having people pick those? And how does that change? How does that implement into potentially the coaching? After coaching thousands of runners, you start to realize that while most of us are kind of combo runners, we're equally good at speed and endurance. If you do more training and certainly if you train for lots of different distances, you might start to tease out, oh, I'm better at the speed training or shorter races. I seem to do better at than I do in the longer races compared to say my training partners. Well, why, why does she perform so much better in the track workouts and I struggle, but yet I can run faster than she can when we do long runs that don't beat me up as much. I started to say, oh wow, that's an important difference because it doesn't matter if you're forcing the training plan onto the runner, but I think the training plan should be made to fit the runner, not the runner to fit the training plan. So if you're doing that and you respect the psychological component that challenging workouts or bad workouts, in quotes, um, makes an athlete not feel confident, then I said, well, if this athlete is more speed oriented, more of a speedster, then I should sprinkle in some more speed workouts because that'll make her feel better. She'll have more positive results. And then also I should be more instructive to her on the workouts that are going to be more of a challenge. So more of the endurance type workouts that she'll, all I want you to do is the, you know, I might do uh, fewer repetitions or fewer miles for that athlete, a speedster athlete doing a more endurance oriented work uh, or slower pace. That's the victory for us. Or, Hey, if we're doing it in a group, if she's in front of you, that's normal. She should be because she's an endurance type athlete and you're doing endurance type workout and you're a speedster. But if you just get a little closer to her, that's a huge victory for you. So that changes their brain because now instead of the workout being like, oh, I couldn't stay with her during this long run. I don't know why that is. Now she goes, oh, that was a positive run for me. So I began to tweak the training plan. So if you found out or you feel through your experience or using the McMillan calculator and seeing, oh, wow, my 5K time is way faster than my marathon time, even though I've been well-trained for the marathon. Well, maybe you need a speedster type marathon plan that will be suited to you a little bit better. It's a little bit more bespoke to your needs, your unique traits. And that may be different than your training partner because she may have a totally different set of traits. So we need to have a different type of training plan for her. Now, once I did that, I found two, well, several things. Number one, injuries went way down. 
because they were never overtraining. They were always optimally training. Because one of the things, if you're doing a workout that's challenging for you and you're forcing yourself to try to perform, then that's overtraining, right? And so you can you can have a lot of injuries. That started to go way down. Secondly, the number of positive workouts started to increase. So those bad workouts that they were negative and was sort of a downer, those started to go away. So now we started to stack more positive workouts one after the after one after the other. You do that for a few weeks, you've got an athlete that is going to eat right, rest, super motivated, do everything right and be in the right headspace. So it was amazing how just these subtle tweaks made a big difference in how the athlete responded to, recovered from and adapted to that training doesn't mean you don't have, you can't do workouts you're not good at or that you don't like or you may perform poorly in but you just understand better what that means for you and and I learned that for myself with my because I'm more speedster oriented whereas my training partner was more endurance so I knew hey if we're doing a tempo run it's going to be easier for him but if I just kind of can keep him in sight that's a good run for me right uh, so that was really the, the sort of genesis of that concept. Coaches, of course, have been doing this for years. Um, I just sort of put it in my, the, my buckets of how I think about it and then really encourage athletes to be attentive as they're training so they start to see, okay, yeah, that was a workout I was really strong at. So when they finish their training cycle, kind of go back and be like, oh, you know what? I perform better in these longer runs. I seem to recover faster than my training partner. Look at my half marathon is a better performance than my 10K. I'm more endurance oriented Then that endurance monster plan will likely be a great fit for you. Thank you for explaining that. And that segues into maybe a slightly bigger, for me at least, like conceptually bigger question. What are your thoughts on the marathon boom and the machine, right, that the marathon industry has become? And I ask that because we were just talking about your endurance monster, speedster, because everybody kind of foregoes the mile and the 5K and the 10K and says, I got in the marathon. I'm going to go run this thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times they think they're endurance oriented, they're endurance monsters until they do more varied training. Maybe they do get into a training group that goes to the track on Tuesdays and they start doing that. Wow. I've got more speed than I thought, or they jump in a 5k or 10k and they do that training. It may illuminate. Well, actually you may be more of a speedster. You just didn't know it because you know, like for me, I came from the short fast and went up to the longer, but it's different. So I had the full kind of spectrum of information, but if you go the other way, you kind of have to work down and it takes a few training cycles to kind of tease all of that out and be open to uh, learning about yourself. And once as you, the more you learn about yourself and what works for you, it just makes training better and better. And because you know how to sequence it, or at least what expectations to have for different workouts. And like I said, then that's more positive training. Now you don't have those bad workouts. You don't have those, things that really start to make you question yourself as much. Because again, we're fighting that lizard brain <laughs> that's happy to say, you know, I don't know if you can do that. That's a real big challenge. You've never run that fast before. You know, it's happy to kind of have that dialogue. And we would prefer 
to be more of, wow, look at my awesomeness. Look what I did. You know, I'm able to keep building my mileage or I'm getting faster. Or I'm developing this skill set that I didn't know that I had before. So I think with the marathon, the great was it got a lot of people into running and then hopefully people will start to expand and do lots of different races, train for those races as well. So they're doing different types of workouts. In my mind, that makes you a better runner overall. It also helps illuminate what are your unique traits, your tendencies, and then you can leverage that uh, in your training going forward. Let's talk about run team. How did how did that concept come about to expand your program and 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 I guess that's A and B. How did how did it go during the year of COVID to have a product like that out there? Yeah, I always did personal coaching. That's how I started was really one-on-one, but you can only coach so many people. So you run out of um, time, to be honest. And so then you get, you know, a staff of coaches and that's good too, but you still can't coach as many people as want to work with you. So run team was kind of the concept of, can we have the best of both worlds? Can I be involved so that athletes can ask questions, et cetera, but can it be a little bit less time intensive than the personal online coaching can be, can it be at a price point that's more affordable, particularly worldwide because we're global. So, you know, some parts of the world, uh, 34 bucks is a lot of money. (laughs) So you have to try to figure out, um, you know, how that can work. And it's been awesome because we have athletes across the globe. We have like a social wall, so kind of like a Facebook wall, gosh, you see people that here's somebody running with a kangaroo and another person's running in the snowstorm. It's just so wonderful. And everybody starts to connect and talk about races. It's, it's been a lot of fun and, and they can select from all of my training plans from every distance to speedster combo, endurance monster, different levels of plan, whatever they want. And then I'm available to answer any questions and I do a weekly check-in videos, etc. It's been uh, a lot of fun for sure. COVID year was not a lot of fun though, (laughs) because, uh, you know, at first it wasn't too bad because it just seemed like everything was going to get delayed. So, you know, spring of 2020, a lot of the talk was just like, okay, well, let's just sort of switch gears and we'll get ready for the the fall instead of the spring. And then it became clear, well, that's not going to work either. So now what do we do when we have an indefinite period? And what training should I be doing for my goals? And for some runners, it was not that big a deal. Uh, They were okay with not having a race or those kinds of things to train for. For others, that was a a really important motivator and that was gone. And maybe they had a running group and suddenly they couldn't meet with the running group or access to where they would run was no longer available. So those things became a big, big challenge. And it's really only now that I feel good about it. So it's been over a year and a half, I guess, that we've been struggling. But as races started to come, in-person races started to come back and the bigger races for sure, I think people got more confident. Okay, I'm going to start training plan (laughs) because, you know, it's stuck for, I mean, some people, their races got, delayed or canceled multiple times. So you're just training indefinitely for this race that may or may not happen. So there was a lot of management of what 
what should I do? When should I just do a time trial, call it a day and start over, et cetera? Yeah, that's hard. I'm just experiencing, I have some friends and a couple athletes that were doing the Cape Cod marathon, which was this past weekend. And we had a huge storm up here and it was canceled, not because of COVID, but because of the weather. And, you know, it's, it's hard. What do you say to an athlete that's trained for four months and then the race is canceled three days before? It's so disappointing. <laughs> it is. That's a lot of times. That's why I like to have a couple of tune-up races during yeah. the training cycle, particularly for the marathon. Because when you put all your eggs in that basket and it's not a good day, man, you can come away deflated, even though you may be in the best shape of your life. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of nice when you got a couple of tune-ups so you can fall back on, well, at least I ran a, a great half marathon or that 10 miler was great or whatever. Uh, sometimes that can be helpful. That's what I was saying to a friend. I said, you know, you kind of should use your fitness that you've acquired. So let's find something that doesn't need to be a marathon. You could do something, you know, do a half or a 10 miler. I have sort of a couple general questions. <laughs> what you brought up your recent book, which I wanted to ask you, 50 lessons is a lot and you've given us so many today, but do you, is there like one lesson in that book that might've been not necessarily the most important, but one of your favorites or one that you think is the most important? Well, I always say the most important lesson in training is that the musculoskeletal system adapts slower than mm -hmm. the systems that we feel. So we talked about it, we mentioned a little bit with new runners, you know, when you first start running, your perception of the, how hard the run is, is your breathing and the messages in your brain, really. I mean, you can certainly feel your muscles, they can get tired, or if you run really fast, you can feel lactic acid in your legs. But for the most part, it's breathing and our sense of effort is how we define, was that a hard run or not? And those systems adapt very quickly to running. Like I mentioned, you can have a new runner and she may have never run before and may really struggle to make it around the block. Guaranteed in two months, she'll be chatting, running circles around the block and having no problem doing it. that cardiorespiratory and certainly our mental system adapts very, very quickly, but the musculoskeletal system adapts slower. And for some of us really slow. Mm -hmm. So the training has to be more tempered than you wish then you could if you were just to use your brain and your heart and lungs as your guide. And as a coach, you're trying to not, you're trying to keep athletes from getting injured because that interrupts the consistency. And since all we're doing is just constantly trying to stimulate the genes to build a new you, replace a current you with a faster you, train for six more months, you replace that faster you with an even faster you. So you want that consistency. So. I think that is the absolute number one lesson that we as coaches and certainly as athletes, we have to just keep our training in a safe zone 99% of the time. And it's only maybe when you've got a big race or a big workout that you've got to get in that you kind of risk that musculoskeletal system. Everything else, you almost want fitness to kind of sneak up on you as opposed to you're really pushing hard to get it. Yeah, that's when you know training's optimal, mm -hmm. is when the challenge, certainly workouts are challenging, but it almost feels like, you know, three or four weeks down the line, you just suddenly feel really good. All of a mm -hmm. sudden the pace gets better, it feels easier, you just, everything kind of comes together. That's when you know you're training optimally. When you're having to fight the training, then you're usually overtraining or under recovering. 
you know, I did a video and this is another lesson that's in the book. It's, uh, you know, which runner showed up today. Mm. And that's what you have to ask yourself every day. And you have to get comfortable with accepting the correct answer and then modifying. So if, you know, as coaches, when you show up, you're going to add, first thing you're going to say is, how are you feeling? Right. And that's what, and that is, that's the information that you then are making that game day decision. Are we doing the workout as planned or are we modifying it? Right. And so you're kind of monitoring that all the way through the workout. So that video, which runner showed up today is all about now you have the ability to go into the workout and say, how do I feel today? So what makes today a successful workout for me? It may be, I feel amazing. I'm going to run the most repetitions on the plan at the fastest pace. I'm going to nail it all because I feel amazing. Or more likely what injures us is I don't feel good. I'm tired. I've had that little niggle of an injury, but yet I'm going to do this full workout. And if I don't do the maximum repetitions, it's a failure because I'm not following the plan. That's not optimal training. That's an athlete that didn't say, okay, and this is what a coach would say, Hey, we're, we may not even do that workout today, or we're just going to do a few repetitions at the slower end and call it a day. We need more recovery. So that ability, again, to make that game day decision is so important because as you mentioned, you're not the same athlete from cycle to cycle. You're not the same athlete from run to run, week to week. And so it's important that you ask that question. So then you're setting yourself up to have the most successful workout you can have on the day. And that I find is a real positive for athletes because if they're accepting of I'm tired, or the weather or whatever it is. So victory, a win for today is actually slower and fewer. <laughs> that's actually mm -hmm. optimal training. That's better training than faster and more. And that seems counterintuitive to our the way our brains work. But once you kind of can get control of that, which runner showed up today and be comfortable with it, it makes a big difference. Do you have any races on your calendar? I do not. It's uh, getting to be perfect training time here. I live in Arizona, and so the summer is like your winter. So you're just trying to survive the summer, uh, you know, and then now you're like, oh, okay, wow, I'm not as out of shape as I thought. I can go out and it's not 110 degrees. So uh, for us, it's a lot about, you know, now you can start base building and thinking about the winter and the spring. It's kind of reversed for what most people have for sure. Do you still race the mile? You know, I, I did. I haven't raced one in, I guess, three years now, um, but it's still my favorite event. In fact, I won the last race. The last mile I did was in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is at 7,000 feet. And I won that, just outkicked the guy barely right at the end, and it was just <laughs> glorious, you know. And then, of course, I see pictures of myself, and I think, oh, what is this old guy doing out there still trying to chase what he was doing when he was in third grade? This is ridiculous. So it's funny, isn't it? This, this thing that we, that it, running grabs you and your, your, my pace is obviously way much, it's much slower, but in my mind, it's the same. It's the same. Can I drive my body to the maximum? And I love that about, about running. And I think no matter where you are in the pack, that's the available opportunity is 
can you get the most from yourself on that day? And, and that's why we, that's our common thread in running. That's why you can sit around and you can talk to people at, that finished early and finished later. And we all, we can share in that common experience. That is awesome. I would love to end it on that note, but I do have one more question. <laughs> uh, sorry. Do you, so you, you had this breadth of experience, you know, from running and then, you know, what you did in school and all of this, this coaching at during that time, like who have been your role models, both in like running and coaching? Yeah. So my first coaching mentor really was Guy Avery is a coach in Tennessee, really exceptional coach. Um, Arthur Lydiard, I got to tour with him. I mean, coach of the century mm-hmm. by runners world last century. So I got to tour with him. So that was really cool. Joe V Hill, very famous U S coach. Uh, he kind of took me under his wing when I was coaching the pro runners. So I got to spend a lot of time with him and then I traveled the world with, you know, got to meet coaches, Eastern European coaches, Asian coaches, African coaches, uh, European coaches, you know, just short distance, long distance, everything. So I really had this wonderful opportunity to kind of be a sponge and learn from all of those people and see, you know, what makes that coach successful? What do I think I can pull from that? Or, you know, oh, I'm going to apply this to this runner because it seems like that would work for her. Things like that. I've just been, I mean, so, so lucky. Who gets to, you know, read Arthur Lydiard's books and then be on tour with him, you know, driving around, staying in the hotels together. So you get to ask all of the questions, you know, and, and then get to hear him answer questions to athletes and then go back to the room and go, so why did you say that? Like, what did you hear that made you say that? And that was really important for me in my growth because I realized I wasn't listening as well as he was. He was a better listener than I was. And so that helped me a lot as a coach that to be around these other you know, remarkable coaches, um, just to kind of learn from their experience because coaching experience is invaluable. So the more you can be around other coaches, I think the better, it just helps your evolution from that robot to artist goes a little Mm -hmm. bit faster. That's why I'm relaunching my McMillan coaching certification program. I did that back in 2015 because so many coaches wanted to have this community where we could kind of learn together and share and, you know, say, I've got this athlete and what should I do? So I'll be launching that later this year as well. Just again, to kind of do, try to do my small part of what those guys did for me. They were happy to share what they knew for a young coach. So hopefully some people will derive some benefit from that as well. Um, so where can people go to find out about the run team and all that you have to offer. Yeah. McMillanrunning.com. Easy as that. Um, the calculators on there, free to use all the tools are there. Run team is a free trial of that. All the training plans, uh, personal coaching, prehab from core to strength training. All of that is available. There's a whole library or learn section with all the articles and videos of course, the YouTube channel has all the video content as well. So um, McMillanRunning.com is certainly a great starting point. All right, Coach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and all that wisdom and knowledge. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> 
And we will, uh, I mean, we're always on your webpage and we're always knowing what you're up to. So we will be in touch for sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on the run team, so we'll, I'll bother you there for sure. Yeah, you can't escape me then. <laughs>